Is your business stuck? Tired of leaving money on the table? Are you ready to take it to the next level? Join us as we dive deep into the small business secrets successful entrepreneurs are implementing to see massive results. This is the Business Growth Hacks Podcast, presented by Beefy Marketing. Here's your host, Andrew Brockenbush. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode. Allison, thank you so much for joining me today. Andrew, thank you so much for having me. Did you hear my intro? Did it come through? Could you hear it? Was it cool? I did. I do. Of course, who can't remember something like Beefy Marketing? I know. Beefy Marketing. What a fun name. People, they always are like, they call us the Beefy Boys, even though we have a team of both <laughs> men and women. They're always like, oh, it's the Beefy Boys, which is a lot of fun. And yeah, the reason I came up with the company name originally was like the whole Wendy's commercial, where's the beef? You know, I was like, where's the substance in marketing? That's what I want. Allison Williams, also known as the law firm mentor, is the owner of two successful companies. She is the founder of Williams Law Group, a full service family law firm and law firm mentor, where she provides business coaching services for solo and small law firm attorneys, helping them grow their revenues, crush chaos in business and make more money. Allison, I'm so excited to be chatting with you. Me too. I can't wait to dive in. Yo, VIP. Let's kick it. Yeah, so I'm going to start off with a bit of an icebreaker here. What common thing have you never done? So I'll start in case that's like a confusing question. As of a week ago, my answer would have been I had never played a round of golf. I had never played golf ever, ever, which I think that's probably a relatively common thing. I think a lot of people play golf. But then last week I got voluntold I was going to be in a golf tournament and I had never played golf in my entire life. I won a little poop emoji trophy that said, at least you tried because I was terrible, but I had a blast. So I would say now I have to change my answer. What common thing have I never done would probably be either snowboarding or skiing. I've hardly even been around snow. I mean, I'm from deep South Texas. Like it don't snow very often down here. So that is my common thing that I've never done. How about you? Man, so you took the one that came to my mind initially, (laughs) which was actually skiing. So what common thing have I never done? I will say I've never ridden on a motorcycle. Oh, I am starting to learn how common this is every time that I, you know, give the disturbed look when I say that my friend owns a Harley (laughs) and I pray every time she gets on it and people are like, what do you mean? You haven't been on a motorcycle? So apparently this is much more common than I realized. And I have never done that. That's awesome. So I've, I can't say that I've ever been on a motorcycle, but I've been on a dirt bike, which I guess that would be considered probably the same thing. Mm. Like, I don't know though. (laughs) Like I've never been on a street legal motorcycle. And okay, I think that so you've been on a street good. illegal motorcycle? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like a dirt bike is not supposed to be on the road, right? Like it's supposed to be off-road, on the dirt, you know. Correct. It's not like if a you're big... riding your dirt bike in traffic, there's a problem. There's a problem. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So you have quite the resume and I would love to kind of deep dive into kind of how you got where you are today and kind of obviously I only gave like a cliff notes intro <laughs> of your immaculate resume. <laughs> so... How about I kind of take it all the way back? What sparked your interest in law in the first place? Oh, my God. That is way back because I am not I'm not a youngster. (laughs) So my interest in law actually started in high school. I was in American history and I was tasked with 
prosecuting Christopher Columbus for war crimes. And so we had to research not only what our history books told us about that part of American history, but we had to kind of go digging for what would have constituted a crime at the time and what constituted an unlawful taking of property and all of that. So we did that research and ultimately put on the trial of Christopher Columbus and I was the lead prosecutor. And it just so happened that my mother worked at the high school where I was a high school student. And in faculty meeting, our history teacher played snippets of the different students presenting their trial testimony. And several people came up to my mom afterward and said, oh my God, she's got to do this with her life. She's amazing. And of course I thought, you know, people are saying that because they're they're, nice. know, they're friends with my mom and they <laughs> yeah. want her to feel good. But later that actually turned out to be not so untrue. So I decided to pursue it, take a look, see if it was something that really fit with me. I never wanted to be a courtroom attorney. When I started out, I was a very shy kid. I had to grow out of that. Okay. But I did like the idea of the money and the power and the status that came with being a lawyer. So quite candidly, that's why I chose it. And here we are. That is so cool. So was it what you pursued right after, like right after high school or did you like do what like most college kids do and kind of like make your way into like what you should have done in the first place? Yeah. So I was always a very goal-directed person. I still am. It's kind of like once I decide what I want to do, I want to get there and I want to get it over with. Yeah. So unfortunately, I couldn't go straight to law school. You are required to pursue your primary education through college first. So, But it took me two and a half years to get my degree in undergrad. And then I also decided to take another year. I was 20 when I graduated from college and was a little anxious about going out into the real world. (laughs) So I decided to get a master's degree in corporate communications before I went to law school. But then I just went straight through. Wow, that is that's pretty impressive. Like that seems mm-hmm. I was not sure what I wanted to do out of high school. Like I was obviously like kind of entrepreneurial like my entire life. I told the story on one of my last episodes that <laughs> one of my first ever businesses was I had gotten a rock as a gift from one of my teachers. She had went to some, I don't know, I guess like foreign place that I thought was crazy. She had brought these rocks back. They're these big, like fancy looking rocks. And, you know, a couple of years later, I would like ride around like the neighborhood trying to sell this rock to my neighbors. <laughs> and so like, what a, what a dummy, like no one's going to buy this rock from me. But that was like my first like entrepreneurial endeavor. And I've always found it difficult for me to like have a very, very clear path. It's like for me, it's like, ooh, what's next? Like I'm, I'm kind of like distracted by shiny things, like a little ADHD, I guess. So it's really it's always interesting to talk to people like yourself who've got like a lot more like focus. Like you know what you're going to do and you did it. And not only that, you've had a lot of success. You won law firm 500 award. You ranked 14th in fastest growing law firms in America. You're a Stevie Award finalist for Female Entrepreneur of the Year in 2017, along with a number of other awards. Like when I saw your one sheet, I was like, dang, like she's <laughs> killing it. Like this is incredible. What would you say have been some of your secrets to the business growth that you've had over the last several years? Yeah. So when I started out as a law firm owner, I I started my law firm in 2013 with a partner and that was a very poor choice, but luckily it ended quickly and amicably. And then I was out on my own. And one of the things that I didn't contemplate that I know a lot of lawyers don't contemplate was actually how to create a business, right? The fact that you work in a law firm does not mean you are running a business. It means you are running a practice. That's why they refer yeah. to it as the practice of law. And I had to acquire the skills to learn how to market and how to create sales systems to get consistent recurring revenue and how to add the right people and how to manage and oversee those people with the right amount of structure, but also the right amount of freedom. 
and integrating all those new skills while trying to manage the lives and litigation of 50 people Mm. was not easy. (laughs) And I was not good at it. So candidly, it really was knowing what you don't know and going out and seeking help. So I had a pretty significant event happen. One week was kind of the the end of of a long series of overworking And I was up to about 90 hours a week by that time. I had hired a series of people that did not work out. And by the time I let go of the third person, I said, you know what, I'll just do this myself. So I said, I'll come into work every morning at 6 a.m. and I'll be a secretary until 8 and then a lawyer until 6 and then a secretary again until 9 and I'll go home and I'll rinse and repeat that. And I did that for several weeks and the work just kept coming because I was also marketing all the time. So I was driving in a lot of opportunity and I never wanted to say no to the opportunity because I was afraid that if I said no to a client or a prospect that I wouldn't get the next one. So next thing you know, I have a very, very significant day where everything that I'm told is on my Friday schedule was suddenly canceled. And I was going to have a day in the office and I was thrilled. And I just decided that I would work a little bit later on Thursday night so I could actually go home and get a good night of sleep. And my night of sleep kicked off a little early when I fell asleep driving and almost hit a guardrail. So that was kind of the the wake up call I needed to say that working harder is not working (laughs) and decided I needed to get someone who knew what they were doing to help me figure out how to run this business. And I did. I started working with a series of different business coaches, very quickly was able to take myself from $0 into a multi-million dollar law firm in three and a half years, was able to get myself out of the day-to-day operations grind just to be the leader of the company. And from there, I was just so satisfied with what I had created. I was happy with the law firm. I had great people on my team, but I was not fulfilled just being an owner. I needed to be in the trenches of work. And so I started the coaching business and decided I would help other lawyers do the same thing. That is incredible. I appreciate your vulnerability in your story because I don't think a lot of people are willing to like be open with the fact that like it sucks sometimes as a business owner, as an entrepreneur. You know, I think that that's like a lot to own and there's like a lot of vanity metrics that come with being like a CEO and like a boss babe and all this. And it's like, it's like, there's a lot of like crap that comes with this as well, right? Like that people aren't always open to talking about. I want to go back for a second. There's actually a couple things that you talked about that like got my like you know, wheels turning a little bit. Like we won't deep dive, I don't think, into the conversation about your split of your business partnership. But I I do want to ask you this because I've actually gone through a partnership split myself in a printing company I owned. And I remember the pivot from that was pretty challenging, you know, like, and it was the same thing. It was pretty amicable and it was, was a lot of respect there, but it was still like, oh, like what now? How do we move forward? You know, how did you handle that? What was that like for you? So, you know, because my partner and I have mended fences, I won't go into too much of the lead up. I'll just say that there was a moment in time where there was kind of a nasty blow up. And then very, very quickly, we both kind of got a hold of ourselves. Now, I will say I threatened to sue, (laughs) which was part of what helped us get a hold of ourselves. But we got, we, we kind of... We had the moment and then we kind of said, what are we doing here? Neither one of us wants it to get nasty because neither one of us are are conflict-driven people, even though we can fight for others. We don't want to fight each other. Exactly. Yeah. We called my accountant, and which was our accountant, and told him what was going on. And he said, all right, let me come and help you. And on Friday, 
literally over pizza over about a six to seven hour time period, we sat down and literally on a napkin, the functional equivalent of a napkin divided everything. Where are the clients going? Where's the money going? Who gets what assets? Who gets what property? How do we disengorge, disengage ourselves from our contracts? We, we literally just divorced ourselves in one day. And it was wow. more about like, we both kind of had a, a finish line in mind of this is not working, but we need to we need to separate ourselves in a way that makes us both whole. So sure. it wasn't necessarily a I'm entitled to this and you're entitled to that conversation. Yeah. It was a, you know, how do we both make sure that we're going to be able to pay our bills, that we're going to be able to keep our reputations, that we're going to be able to serve our clients and that we're going to be able to keep going after this. And yeah. when you approach it from that perspective, even though I recognize as a divorce attorney, it is very hard to approach yeah. it from that perspective. But when you approach it from that perspective, that the idea of getting over it and getting on with your life is more important than being right or getting what you're due, it becomes a lot easier to answer the question, how are we going to both be made whole? So we ask that question with everything, right? How are we going to be made whole with dividing up the clients? How are we going to be made whole with the money in the trust account? How are we going to be made whole with the chairs, with the glasses, with the, you know, yeah. with the office supply account? And then, you know, the in our having our accountant there was really helpful because he was able to say, now, if our goal is to keep you both whole, you know, what I would recommend is, you know, partner take this and Allison, you take that, right? So it was never about who brought it in or who was the one entitled to take it on because there were legal remedies that either one of us could have asserted to get what we wanted. But our goal was to get it over with as fast as possible and still be okay. So there are some things I conceded that I know I would win in a courtroom if I went there, but I would have to take time, energy, effort, and money I didn't want to spend. So with that, we were able to kind of get to the punchline. And then the challenging part was really that we we had a lease and our lease was not written very well by our landlord. Oh, <laughs> so man. it was very easy to approach our landlord and say, listen, Allison is going to enter into a new lease with the same terms and partner is going to enter into a new lease with comparable terms in a different part of the building. We actually stayed in the same building together oh, wow. on different floors. And because I had more of the people staying with me, I needed the space that we had. And my partner went to a smaller space. But you know, we were able to work that out. And the great thing about that was, since we knew we were going to have to see each other, we kind of had to get to a place of, you know, peace with what we were deciding. And once we made that decision, the next pivot was really just keeping ourselves going. So it was kind of like, we had a, a month where we were technically in the same office suite before the dissolution formally happened and before oh, wow. we went to, and that was very uncomfortable. And yeah, if for I sure. give any awkward. advice to yeah. anyone <laughs> in the future, I would say, just give yourself the psychological piece of one of you exits, one of you goes and works in your home or, or you split time, you know, one of you works, you know, eight to noon and the other one works noon to four or whatever. Yeah. So that you don't have to have that tension in the air because that was very uncomfortable and very unfortunate. But yeah. outside of that, it was a relatively amicable, you know, seamless process. Yeah, no, I think that honestly that, that again, it's like one of those areas that people don't talk about that. Like a lot of business partnerships go wrong and mm-hmm. you hear a lot of like nightmares and like horror stories around that. So it's obviously, you know, admirable that you you guys handled it in a very respectable way. But it's also interesting to just like have like the context around like, hey, like it's not always like an easy journey, you know, and, and it just goes to show how important having counsel and having, you know, like mediators, if you will, 
in your court sometimes can really help the situation, right? Like when it's just me and someone who I've got conflict with going at it, like there's no end in sight. Like we're just too involved passionately, emotionally to like just look at it with like a clear perspective. It's just like, hey, here's here's what we're looking at. And so like it was really great that you were able to pull from your accountant to help you guys out with that. Yeah. And that kind of leads me to like my next question. You know, you mentioned like that night you kind of had your wake up call when you almost hit the guardrail that like you couldn't do it all by yourself, right? Like working harder wasn't necessarily working smarter. It wasn't necessarily being successful, right? It was just a lot of work and you needed help. I think for a lot of people in their journey, when it comes to like hiring someone, whether it's a new employee or if it's a a contractor or in your case, consultants, it can be really scary to make that first hire, to take that leap of faith, right? You know, financially, maybe you were able to do that and it wasn't scary, but like how did you handle making that first call, that first hire for a consultant to help you get out of that rut you were in. Yeah. Well, I will say this. So first of all, no matter how much money you have, how you feel about money is always going to be the part that's going to inform your fear. So ironically, I tell people this all the time and it, it still amazes people when I share it, but I didn't have a lack of money when I went out on my own. You know, when I left my law firm as an employee, I was generating about half a million dollars a year on my reputation alone. So I didn't have to have a website right away. I didn't have to generate clients right away. Clients were being referred to me more than I could handle. That's part of the reason why I ultimately left. I said, you need to hire someone to help me service these clients because I don't want to stop taking them. And I don't want to commit malpractice or ruin my reputation because I can't get to all the work. So I didn't have that problem. I didn't have that tactical problem, but I did have the mindset problem. I did have a extraordinary fear of spending money. And I don't want to tell you that I overcame it. I want to tell you that the shock and terror of almost dying yeah. was was larger than the shock and fear of spending money on this particular service. And that's always that's almost always going to be the case. There's always going to be some fear of what you're doing, especially when when it comes time to spend money, right? People will always have a fear of what if I spend this money and I don't get my return? Or what if I spend this money and I don't make it back? Or I don't know how to, you know, live without it? Or I'm not able to generate more clients, I can't pay for it in the future. And the answer is always going to be that you have to desire the thing you're spending money on greater than the value of having the false security of having money in the bank. Because if you ask any of Bernie Madoff's victims, they will tell you money in the bank is not security. It's perceived security, but it can be gone, right? That's right. The only thing that you're ever going to have true security in is what you alone are capable of doing. You have to develop that in order to know that whether you spend a million dollars or a dollar fifty, you will always be okay if you recognize and tap into your own resilience. So That was pretty much where I was. You know, I almost died in that accident and I was terrified. So when someone said to me, I can help you and it's going to cost you 30 grand a year, I said, okay, I don't care if I have to eat beanies and weenies. I don't care if, you know, if I don't eat one month, I don't care if I have to live in my office and not have a townhouse. I don't care. I have to do this because what happened to me or what almost happened to me was greater than the risk that I would incur by not making the sale or not buying. And 100%. frankly, as somebody who, you know, I've already kind of, I told you kind of this particular tragedy of my life. One of the two of the things that preceded it was that at one point in my life, I went through a very severe depression and started taking psychotropic medications by a psychiatrist, precipitously stopped them, and I became suicidal. 
So that's a part of my history. And I also used to medicate my emotions with alcohol and I became an alcoholic. And I also had to get into recovery. And that's a part of my history. And both of those things predated my becoming a business owner. So I was a little bit used to trauma. I had kind of put (laughs) myself through my own little ringer of of traumatic events. And by this time that this near-death accident happened, I had already decided that I was going to do whatever I needed to do to stay on Earth because God spared me from my demons before. I'm here for a reason. I didn't know what it was at that time, but... I knew I needed to be here. So I said, all right, this time I almost died. I've got to do whatever it takes to not do that again. Yeah. And this was kind of the, if I have to just spend money, you know, I I don't care if I'm impoverished and thankfully I wasn't and, and never became, I ultimately became very successful, but the journey to becoming successful was about really stepping into it because I felt I had to. Yeah. I feel like we could have a whole other podcast about some of your (laughs) before like the making of today's podcast episode, you know, <laughs> which is just fascinating. The, the other podcast that I host and produce is called Team Never Quit. And it's all about people overcoming adversity, sharing their greatest never quit stories. And so it sounds like you've got quite the never quit story, which is just fascinating. So something that I'm kind of taking away from this, and like I know as a business owner, one of the biggest challenges I've faced as a business owner as an entrepreneur is hiring people. Again, whether it's an employee, a contractor, you know, it doesn't matter. Like hiring is scary. And again, it's like that fear is usually tied or associated to money or monetizations. But I think in general, it's beyond that too. It's like, am I hiring the right person for the job? Am I hiring people that will be a culture fit? Will they get the job done? Can I count on that person? And so I wanted to ask you, what are some of the top characteristics that you look for when you're making a hire in your business or when you're giving advice to the other people that you mentor? Yeah. So I love the topic of hiring because there's so much you can learn about yourself and involve in yourself when you're hiring another person because you have to confront so many things about what you're trying to create, right? So one of the things that I teach our clients about hiring is that you always have to be looking for attitude, aptitude, and fit right? So the attitude is pretty easy. Most people know that they want somebody who is dedicated to the work that you're doing, not just there for the paycheck, somebody who is a team player or not. Sometimes you're looking for somebody who's a very significant individualist, depending on the type of role they're going to occupy. So you have to be thinking about what are going to be the success attributes of the culture, as well as the role that you are trying to hire for. Then the aptitude. The aptitude is where a lot of people go and they don't go far enough But the aptitude is, can they do the job, right? What are the key things that you have to do? And when it's time to look for aptitude, do not ask someone if they can do what you need them to do and expect that you're going to get any answer other than, of course, because the person is trying to get the job. So I always tell people, you know, you wait to hire until you're desperate. And then you say, I need somebody who can type 90 words a minute. Can you type 90 words a minute? Oh, sure. Of course I can. You sound perfect, (laughs) right? And then, of course, when the person comes in and they type 30 words a minute, you're like, well, but you told me you could type 90 words a minute. They're like, well, I can. And then they're trying to justify ex post facto. So to avoid that, you have to learn the art of behavioral interviewing. You have to ask people to give you an example of when they were able to demonstrate the particular activity. And then you have to actually put them through demonstrating the activity in the interview. So whenever I hire someone, they are put to the task of whatever they're going to be asked to do in the interview. 
If you're going to be my receptionist, we're going to play role play. And I'm going to start giving some of the aggressive people on the phone, some of the marketers that want to get through, some of the some of the not so pleasant salespeople, some of the people calling to pay their bills, some people that are very emotional, some people that are very angry, because you're going to encounter that, right? So how do you handle that on the fly, on the cuff with no practice and no time to prepare is going to show me a lot of what you're going to be able to do instinctually as to whether or not I can train and coach and develop you into being superior at it in the office. And then finally, the fit, right? The cultural fit. It's really, really important that you hire a person who has the right type of personality for the personality of your business. And what I mean by that is not necessarily that everyone has to tell the slapstick joke or everyone has to, you know, have a a very pristine way of communicating. You can have different personalities. You can have different humans. But if you are creating a very stiff, professional, corporate environment, the person who is very casual and laid back and lackadaisical does not fit with you. Or if you are a jeans and t-shirt person and you want everybody to come into the office and have beer after work on Fridays, you don't want to bring in the person who's not comfortable leaving a very stiff suit or, you know, clutching grandma's pearls when they are coming to work. (laughs) You have to make sure that you're bringing people that fit with what you are bringing. And that's not just fit in terms of personality. That's also fit in terms of how they like to work, right? The person who is aggressively pursuing their goals and really wants to rise to the top of the stratosphere and wants their name on the building is not going to be the same type of person who wants to have work-life balance and to go home every day at five o'clock. There's nothing wrong with either of those, but you have to decide what you want and make sure that you either carve out a space for both of them or that you choose And when you choose that you're very clearly communicating that about your culture when you hire people in so that you can test for that fit before you get them here. 100%. Yeah, that that is all great advice. So I used to work for Apple. So like prior to owning a marketing agency, I worked for Apple. I was a corporate sales trainer. I would do grand openings and train. And like that is exactly like that's Apple. Like you're like making me nerd out. It's like Apple talk, right? Like that's so important, you know, even as a business owner now, I've struggled with that. It's like, okay, I think you're a culture fit, but I'm not sure because like you have your own unique personality. And like to some extent you have to take a risk sometimes. Like it's not always going to be black and white, like exactly what it's supposed to be. There's no guide to being a business owner truly, you know? But I think there are things, like you said, if you can kind of take a behavioral approach and really understand how they're going to fit into that situation. And then also I think be willing to, I wouldn't say compromise, but I mean, I guess kind of compromise in the sense that like you have to be adaptable and flexible with the people that you work with, right? Mm -hmm. Because I don't want everybody to fit the same mold or we wouldn't be unique organization. We wouldn't have the ability to shine in our unique talents and abilities and our passions. And that's something I've really learned over the, the years is just hey, like trust your experts is what I always tell my clients. Like trust your experts. Like they do what they do because they do what they do. Okay, so one thing you said that like scares me, but I love (laughs) is like everyone waits to hire someone until it's like code red, right? It's like, oh God, what are we going to do? We got to hire someone and now you're figuring out the numbers and you're you're rushing the interview process. When is the right time to hire someone? What is your advice for people out there who are looking to hire their first employee or maybe their hundredth employee? So I very literally translate this into a numerical metric for law firm owners. And I imagine that it is similarly available to be done in any type of business. You have to think about how much work you have available. And then essentially, when you get to 25% of the total amount of work that you have available, that you are able to get to on a regular basis, that's when it's time for you to hire someone. 
So in other words, when you think 75% of the things that are on my plate right now could go to someone else and I would still be busy, that's when you need to get the person in the door. Because almost invariably with legal work, there are ways to expand your work. And by expand your work, I don't mean to find ways to bill people for more work. I mean that almost invariably there is a range of activity that is the mandatory necessary in order to ethically handle a legal file. But then there's that other part of the experience of representing someone that's gravy, right? Whether you choose to send an FYI email or you choose to get on the phone or you choose to bring someone in to talk about the ramifications of what you're communicating, each of those has a quantifiable value. Each of those meets the minimum standard of due diligence as an attorney. But one of them is the superior customer service experience. And that is bringing the person in to really explain things and go through and let them ask questions. Lawyers don't always have time for that, right? So if I know that I got to get this person the information they need because I got to move on to the next person or the next lease to negotiate or the next office supply to order or the next person to interview, I might not do all that I can do. I might do enough, but it might not be the best for the client. And so when you start thinking about your business as a customer service conduit, like how can I give the best service to the person so that they don't just pay me for doing work, but they are actually pleased to pay for a great service that they got. They feel that they were counseled and cared for through a difficult time in their life. That is when you start to see that you have ample opportunity to do a lot more work than you're doing. But most of us, we're so busy doing the strategy and the tactical, we're racing to get all of the little stuff done that the big stuff like managing the relationship, taking care of the client, meeting expectations, keeping a client happy, all of those things that generate more clients naturally and organically, those things go to the wayside. So when you start looking at how to monetize those things and you see that you aren't touching those things, you really have the availability of hiring someone far before you think you do. And this is one thing I always tell my clients, nothing creates hustle like hungry. So as Mm -hmm. you bring someone through the door and you know, you got a mouth to feed, you will miraculously get off your ass and get, get to work. Right. Absolutely. And so it's the same thing with parenting, right? There's no great time to have a kid, except when the kid is here, suddenly you have the ability to feed the kid. Why? Because the kid has to eat, whether you have figured out your life plan or not. I don't care if you have to go work at McDonald's at that point. I don't care if you have to cook up trash on the side of the road, the kid has to eat. So you figure it out. It's the same thing about being a business owner, but so many of us are so afraid to do the work. We're so afraid of being in a state of lack where we won't have enough for ourselves that we hoard it all to ourselves and are afraid to bring people in. And then we think, okay, I'm going to make more profit if I have a smaller business. And that is technically true, but I would rather have 85% of a $500,000 business than 100% of a $200,000 business. And that's where the ignorance sets in around not choosing to bring people in. So you've got to make that decision before you're comfortable and there's no other way to do it than just to do it. Yeah, I tell people the same thing who are going into entrepreneurship for the very first time, right? It's like, there's never a right time to start a business, right? Like you have to do your homework, you have to do your research, you have to take that leap of faith at some point. And more importantly, like you said, like when you're hungry, you will find success Mm -hmm. because you're going to have to, right? Like there's no option. Like either you're going to make it or you're not going to make it. So we've talked a lot about the fear of money, right? Like the fear of money holding people back from hiring people, the fear of money from getting your first consultant, the fear of money for growth, whatever it may be, right? Like money is always the fear. I feel like it's related to marketing. It's related to sales. It's always like, you know, money is the root of all evil, whatever. You know, I don't believe that, but I do believe that it does create a lot of 
you know, unique challenges in someone's business. So I want to talk about that for a second. How can a small business create a marketing plan that creates consistent recurring revenue? This is like a, a passion topic of mine because I switched my business to a recurring revenue model, I guess, three or four years ago. And it was the best thing I ever did, right? Like, I was like, I don't know why, like I've been in business as of March of next year, it'll be 10 years that I've owned this marketing agency. And it's like, why didn't I do this a long time ago? Like this, <laughs> like my recurring revenue would be way higher. Yeah. And so, you know, what advice do you have for people to be able to do that, especially in the law space? Yeah. So one of the things that I, that I highly recommend to lawyers when they start thinking about a marketing plan, kind of the eyes glaze over and there's almost like this, oh my God, you're talking calculus and I just learned how to yeah. add mindset. But it doesn't have to be hard at all. It really is very simple when you think about it. What you really want to do is you want to create different funnels of ways for you to get clients. So that can be networking, that can be digital marketing online, that can be billboards, that can be trade shows, that can be one-to-one -one networking, lots of different avenues for you to drive clients in. And for each of those different funnels, you have to know your numbers, right? You have to know how many impressions that you need, i.e. how many eyes on your marketing message are ultimately going to result from that activity. You have to know how many leads are within those impressions, right? So I can have 10,000 people see my billboard, but if only a hundred of those people are viable humans that need the service that I offer, then the hundred is the number that matters to you, right? And then of those leads, you have to know how many are viable. So there could be people that call your law firm and want you to represent them, but you might not be inclined to represent them, right? Classic example, criminal defense client calls up and says, I've been charged with murder. Can you help me? And you say, tell me a little bit more about that. And they say, I've got trial on Monday and today is Friday. You're probably not inclined to jump into that, right? Because most people would say, I can't ethically prepare on such short notice. So you're, that person's not viable, even though they are a lead. They need you, but you don't want to give them your service. Then, of course, you have to think about the bottom half of your funnel, which is really your sales portion, right? So how many people are scheduling an appointment? What is the percentage of people that call that schedule? What is the percentage of people that schedule that actually show up? And then finally, how many of those that show up will become paying clients? What's your conversion rate on sales? So you need those numbers for each of your different funnels. And when you have those numbers, you can then predict, here are the number of people I am likely to generate off of each of my funnels. I've got, let's say, five different funnels. Each of them is going to have different numbers. I'm going to have a certain projected number of clients from each of them. And then if I know how much the average case value is for each case I sell, right? If a client is a $10,000 case and I know that each funnel is going to get me five clients, then I've got five clients at $10,000 each. That's $50,000 per funnel. And I've got five funnels. That's $250,000, right? So the numbers then make your plan. Now, from those, you have to think about how you're going to actually generate the clients through your funnel. So if I go to a networking event and I know there's 100 people there, I've got 100 impressions, 100 people that are going to consume my marketing message. But maybe out of the leads, the referral relationships I can create there, there's a small number, right? And maybe those are some very powerful, impactful relationships. Maybe every person that John, the accountant, refers me is going to convert into a client and my sales numbers are through the roof, right? Maybe I convert 75% of those. But if I've got digital marketing, maybe my marketing message is not dialed in yet, right? Maybe I'm only going to convert 30% of those people who call my office. But maybe those clients are going to convert at a higher price point, right? So you have to get intimately connected with the numbers that are going to drive your success. But once you have those funnels and you start working those funnels, 
the real key to having a recurring revenue model law firm is to make sure that you have activity on your schedule every single week that is going to lead to, of those funnels, the number of prospects that you need to convert into the number of paying clients that you require for the revenue. And if you start thinking about that way, if you start thinking every time I do an activity, this is the likely result in terms of the number of people to call, the number of people to schedule an appointment, and the number to show up and ultimately convert, then your plan actually has some meat on the bones, right? It's not just kind of a, I want this much money at the end of the year, but you actually have activity that makes sense for you to be doing to lead to that income. Yeah, that is gold. Like everything she just said, take it, write it down, rewind, take it back, take it back. Because I tell people all the time, and I'd say more than half of the episodes that we've had, we talk about how important it is to not only create a plan, but to know your numbers. Like those are the two most, in my opinion, the two most important things you could do in your business and do for your business. You know, knowing what your lifetime value is of a customer, knowing what your customer acquisition cost is, knowing what funnels are producing, what kind of, you know, performance. Like I talk to so many companies in the marketing business that have no idea. Like I'll say, hey, what's the average client worth to you? What does it cost to acquire a client? What happens if you don't get five new deals by the end of the year? Most business owners cannot answer those questions, which is a massive opportunity, (laughs) right? It's sad, right? And like you wonder why, you know, the majority of businesses don't succeed in America. It's because you don't have a plan. And to some extent, you're trying to wing it. Like I think we all are winging it to some extent, but that doesn't mean you can't have a plan, right? Because we're a business growth hacks podcast, I have to ask you some questions that I think any of our lawyers in our audience would probably like to know. (laughs) What would you say are some of the best ways to convert more clients over the competition, right? In your in y'all's industry, competition is crazy. Like it is cutthroat. People are spending a lot of money. I, I just had a meeting with a lawyer this morning and he's I was like, hey, you doing any TV ads? He's like, no, nah, that's a different kind of money. He's like, that's a different kind of money that I'm not spending, you know? So what are some of the things that you have done or you've seen to be successful in your business to win over clients from your competitors? Yeah. So, I mean, the one thing that I think we always need to start with that most lawyers neglect is really your ideal client avatar. So I think a lot of people just kind of blast out a, hi, I am a lawyer that does X and I can help you. We care about our clients here. You're never going to be just a number. We're going to answer all of your phone calls. And I hate to put it this way, but nobody really gives a shit about that, right? Mm -hmm. They presume those (laughs) things to be true by virtue of you being in business. The fact that you might not return a phone call is not something they're thinking about when they're choosing you over someone else. They really need to hear what it is about you that makes you uniquely suited to help them. And some of that goes to the psychographics of an avatar, right? You know, what, how do these people think? Are these the, are these the soccer moms that are very conservative that are at the country club? Or are these your stay at home dads who are displaced from the workforce who used to work on Wall Street, right? Are they politically conservative or liberal? Are they religious or not? Are they hanging out at the mall on the weekends? Or, you know, are they workaholics that are kind of chomping away at the computer because they've been homeschooling their kids during the pandemic, right? Who are these people? And you really have to get really clear on who they are. And you have to get really clear on who you are. So I always take my clients through an exercise of like, think through who was the person that you represented that just kind of lit you on fire, right? They were the kind of person that you love to fight for. You love to get them the great result. You enjoyed talking to them. You liked the issues in their case. It was sexy and rewarding and fun for you. It really tapped you into why you became a lawyer in the first place. 
That is the person that I want you to build your marketing messaging around. Have their person's face in front of you when you are writing copy, when you are outsourcing copy, right? When you're talking to someone else about that person, that really needs to be super clear. Once you do that, it becomes a lot easier to convert people because when they come to the office, yes, they need to go through an appropriate sales process. You need to learn how to sell. That's always going to be a key to being able to effectively convert people. But even as your team is talking about you, right, they can talk about you in a way that you can't talk about yourself. So you have got to get them inculcated with the culture of who you are so that when you're talking to someone, they will immediately know, yeah, this person is for me, right? This special needs attorney is a special needs attorney because their child has autism just like me, right? Or this criminal defense attorney was falsely accused of something in their youth and it could have derailed their life. And they understand what it is to be falsely accused of something. And that's me right? You need to have something that is the hook between you and your client. And then around Mm -hmm. that, of course, you need to build in kind of your unique selling advantage, right? Your unique competitive advantage. Like what is it about you that differentiates you? So if you've won awards, tell your clients, right? If the awards that you are boasting about on your website are not the ones that you can buy for 250 bucks, but the awards that the bar association only gives out once a year, tell somebody about it. You know, if you are involved in certain organizations that have a spiritual connection and that's something that is unique to you as a person, tell somebody about it. And when you start marrying your story and who you are with the ideal person, the person that really connected with that, it becomes a lot easier to sell. You're really, you're not selling at that point. You're more transacting because they've made up their mind on you before they get there, which is more than half the battle. And then your sales conversation just guides them appropriately right on over the threshold. Yeah, dialing in your customer persona, your customer avatar, anytime we do a branding job for a client, like that's step one. Like we're not talking about logos that you like and colors you like, fonts you like until we've decided what that is. And we even tell our clients to like name that person. Mm -hmm. Like when you're making decisions as a business, when y'all are all sitting around a conference table talking about, you know, what you're about to do for an event or what you're about to do for a new marketing effort or initiative, you should be talking about that person as if they're a customer sitting in the room or a customer you work with on a regular basis so that you can really speak to their challenges, their pain points, their desires, their everything, right? And so that obviously is, you're like speaking my language because I'm like a marketing nerd. And so I really love that. And I think that it really shapes to your entire content strategy from Mm -hmm. social content to blogs and search engine optimization, like all the fun marketing things that we do. That kind of like brings me to this like idea that, you know, in the inbound marketing strategy, we talk about lead magnets a lot, free resources that people can get in exchange for info. And I was on your website and I noticed that you guys have some pretty incredible resources on your site. You've got a few different worksheets, you know, things like that. Why do you offer these resources for free? What is the value in that for your customers? Well, I mean, it really goes to what we were just talking about, which is the ideal client, right? So, you know, here at Law Firm Mentor, we are very particular about who we allow into our community because we don't just have one-to-one relationships. All of our clients will work with all of our coaches. There's a total of five of us on the team. We all have particularized expertise. And when you work with our team, you come into a container to do that. And so that means the people who are already my clients, the people who I already have a contractual, moral, ethical relationship with, they have a certain expectation of having a positive experience. And if you come in with a shitty attitude, or if you simply don't have the need that we service, and thus you're going to be unhappy or unable to take advantage of what we offer, that doesn't benefit anyone. It doesn't benefit you. It doesn't benefit us. And it doesn't benefit the other clients that I have. So we want people to know the general nature of what we offer, right? 
Part of it is education. We're helping you to see the value that you'd get working with us. Part of it is making sure that you have the types of problems that we help people with, right? If somebody comes in and says, my problem is that I need a complete overhaul of my brand strategy, I would tell them that is certainly a part of a comprehensive marketing plan. We help you with the marketing plan. We don't help you to rebrand yourself. We would refer you out for that. And we would tell you, you need to work with someone and and here are some ways that you can make sure that that person or team is the right team for you, right? But we want people to know what they're getting in for. And frankly, we want them to know how superior is the talent and the capabilities of our team here. And you can really see that through the, the free trainings and the information that we give. And then once we get those people into our orbit, we're very candid about this, right? We, we want you to know that we want to help you if you have the problem that we service. So we're going to be reaching out to you and we're going to be offering you more trainings and opportunities to learn more from us. And we're going to ask you directly in our call to action. If you have a problem, let us have a conversation with you to see if we're fit to work together. That's so cool. I love that you've done a lot to not only self-qualify clients, because I think that's so important. A lot of business owners talk about how, oh, I get so many form requests and they're just not a good fit and they're wasting our receptionist time. It's like, well, then put the processes and systems in place so that the person kind of self-qualifies. Am I a good fit or am I not a good fit? Which goes back to that brand avatar. If you don't have that, that's why you're not thinking about doing it because you don't know who your ideal client is. Right. You're just hoping that somebody calls you and signs up. Right. Have paychecks. So they're qualified. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I think at the end of the day, like a lot of us, especially in the beginning, early days of entrepreneurship, I think we all do that. Like I know early beefy, I was like, do this for free for a chance for promotion? Like, absolutely. Like right. now it's like, I am very selective about like pro bono work because mm-hmm. I'm busy and I want to be able to deliver the same amount of value to my clients that pay me the smallest retainers to the highest retainers. And the only way I can do that is by protecting my time, which means I can't always do work for free. Absolutely. Well, we're kind of at a great place to wrap up. I think you could provide so much more value to our audience. And so I think that this is kind of a perfect time to give you the chance to do a little, you know, shameless plug action. But I'm going to ask you one question before I get you into that. What is your favorite episode of your own podcast? Crushing Chaos with Law Firm Mentor. What is your favorite episode? If somebody had to go to the podcast right now and listen to one episode, can you think of one off the top of your head? If not, I'll let you send it to me and I can drop it in the show notes at the end for people to check out. (laughs) Okay. So I feel like completely caught off guard by this because like, (laughs) who thinks about that, right? What kind of narcissist would have their own favorite (laughs) episode of their own podcast? Let me tell you. No. (laughs) All right. So if I have to think about it, I did a podcast called How to Be Decisive. And that is probably what I would consider to be my favorite episode, because what it does is I think a lot of us as law, as lawyers in particular, as law firm owners in specialization, but really as humans, I think people get into a cycle of saying, I've got to think about it. And they spend so much time circling the wagons, thinking and thinking and thinking. They don't ever go into a strategy session with someone and say, what information do I truly need to make this decision? And the number of people that have kind of spun around, round and around and around, right? They will say, oh yeah, I've been following you for two years. And my response is, well, let's assume that you had actually been smart enough to come up with the criteria you needed to decide on a coach before this two-year time period had elapsed. How much more successful would you have been by now if you had started this journey two years ago? And that's not to demean the person, right? Because I will acknowledge that I've done it. And I give examples to my clients all the time of some of the the stinking thinking that I have myself. But if you don't have a framework for what you need, then data comes at you and you filter it through the lens of what you already understand. 
The problem is I'm selling you something that you don't understand, because if you understood it already, you would have been doing these strategies yourself to get yourself to the success that you need. So that lack of information, that knowledge deficit, oftentimes, especially for lawyers, will stop them from making a decision. And they'll say, I don't know if this is the right answer, even though I'm hearing things that resonate with me. And what I always do when we have those kind of conversations is say, well, let's stop and pause, right? What is the information that you feel you need in order to make this decision? Like, what are you going to base this decision on? And almost invariably, they can't give me an answer. It's almost like the porn answer, right? I'll know it when I see it. And here's the thing. If you haven't bought coaching before, you won't know it when you see it, right? You'll know if somebody can give you a snazzy answer or if you're just in the buying mood at that point or my personal favorite, I tell you the price point, you get sticker shock and then you go sleep on it. And then the next person finds you before you come back to me and they tell you the same price point or a higher price point and you're now psychologically prepared to spend it. So you go buy it there, right? That's what a lot of people do because they don't go in with this is what I need to know in order to make the decision. And if you do that and you learn how to be decisive, you can make decisions faster. You can get to a yes, or you can get to a no, or you can get to a yes, and it's the wrong decision, but you can recover from it that much faster because you have a framework for what you need to be successful. And that's how you feel growth. That's how you get there in a year, two years, three years, instead of 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And people just have to learn how to embrace that. So that's the reason why I was so happy with that particular episode. Well, I am definitely going to listen to that episode and I can think of a few other indecisive people in my life that I'll send it to, me included. So don't worry, like I'm taking the fall too here, okay? I am guilty for sure for being over like analyzation, like I overanalyze everything. I like want to like, okay, if we do this, like let's create a spreadsheet, let's do a whiteboard. And it's like, okay, dude, just let's get to it. So, well, you know, I have had a blast chatting with you. I think that there's so much value you can offer my community. I think there's a lot of value that you offer, especially in your industry, the lawyer community. And I've got several clients who I'm going to send this episode to because they're lawyers. And I think that they can take a lot away from this and what you're doing at Law Firm Mentor. So without further ado, I'm going to give you the floor to promote anything you have going on. Tell people how they can support you or they can follow you. They can find you all that good stuff. All right. So shameless plug, you can always find us on our website at lawfirmmentor.net. That is .net.com is not the answer. It is .net. And I'd like to tell you about something that's coming up called Marketing for the Masters. So as I said earlier, uh, whenever someone says, hey, I want someone to build my website or rebrand my business, you know, I always tell them you need to be working with a professional marketer to do something like that. I would refer you to someone like Andrew. But in terms of being able to get to consistent recurring revenue and learn how to make marketing into an institutionalized practice in your business in a way that does not require you to spend money every time you want more clients you have to learn how to ultimately create a recurring revenue model in your law firm. And we help people do that at our upcoming retreat called Marketing for the Masters. So check that out. You can go to our website, learn more about it. You can always talk to a growth strategist on our team. And again, that can be found at lawfirmmentor.net. That seems like a no-brainer. Who doesn't want recurring revenue? Come on. I have had such a blast talking with you, Allison. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me, talk with our audience. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you one more question. It'll be the last one, I promise. This will wrap it up. What is one business growth hack? What is one thing, if you could leave our, our audience with one little golden nugget, what would that be? Well, I am known for helping lawyers to grow revenues, crush chaos in business and make more money. Emphasis on crush chaos. And the way that you crush chaos in any business is to systematize everything. And so 
I'm a big proponent of learning how to not only create systems, but also creating a culture of systems so that everything is done the same way, uniformly with the high quality that is required for your profession. Systematize your business. You'll never regret it. Hallelujah. I believe in that. I did it for myself a few years ago. Best thing I ever did. Allison, thanks again. Have a great day. You too, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Growth Hacks podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you never miss an episode. To get more marketing tips and tricks, follow Beefy Marketing on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Beefy Marketing. And to take your business to the next level, check out our website at www.beefymarketing.com.